Welcome to ASRM Today Book Review, a podcast that interviews the authors who dive deeper into the field of reproductive medicine. Welcome to the show. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. On this episode of the Book Review, our guest is a women's wellness expert and board-certified gynecologic oncologist at Beth Israel Leahy Health and Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, with over 25 years of experience. She's been recognized numerous times by Castle Connolly Regional Top Doctors List, Boston Magazine, North Shore Magazine, and as an exceptional woman in medicine. She teaches as an adjunct clinical associate professor of OBGYN at Boston University School of Medicine. Her book is It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the review, Dr. Valina Wright. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Wright. Hi, it's really my pleasure. Thank you for having me as a guest. Absolutely. And we're going to get into this wonderful book that you've written. My first question for you is, throughout the book, you talk about finding your power. In fact, power is emphasized even on the cover of the book to personalize and appreciate oneself. Can you just unpack a bit for our listeners about this idea you propose of finding your power? I think it's really important for women to speak up. Often we know our own bodies well, and historically we are sometimes dismissed. And it may be the way that we speak up or the biases that people have when they're in a physician-patient relationship. There's an imbalance of power there sometimes. And so we have to have confidence in ourselves when we aren't feeling well and we know there's something wrong. There's actually a tendency, obviously, for us sometimes to deny symptoms ourselves. There's, you know, there's often delay in diagnosis on the part of the patient, but sometimes it's also delay in the part of the physician. So when things are wrong and we can't find an answer and the problems are persistent, we really need to speak up and get a second opinion even if that's if that's what's required. It's important to have a relationship with your physician that you're able to have difficult conversations and that you feel that you're listened to. And even if the doctor doesn't have the right, quite the right answer, it, you have to have confidence that it, you can go back and that you'll work through it together as a team and figure out a solution. Yeah, you have a, you have a really nice phrase in the book that sort of sums that up. It's a well woman visit you know, or well women visits. I, I just, that was amazing. When I was reading, I was just like, oh, that's so wonderful, you know. So let me segue then from this wonderful concept of well women visits. This book is very personal for you. You have personally lost loved ones to cancer. You recount so many moving stories in the book of the personal struggles of women. And I, I found myself in putting my notes together, I got to thinking about grief. And my question then is, what role does grief play often for patients that you encounter who either are the partner of someone who's diagnosed or even has lost someone in the past? So I really was motivated to write this book in memory of my sister, my older sister, Debbie, and it happens to be her birthday today. (laughs) So, you know, I, I really honor her memory by writing. And I think when we write things down that are difficult in a way, it allows us to process things and perhaps move on in a positive way. Grief is difficult. You know, when, when we have to, as physicians or oncologists tell patients that they have cancers, there's variety of stages people go through in coming to terms with that diagnosis. 
especially when they're they're potentially facing a, a terminal cancer diagnosis and ex- accepting that. So grief is is difficult emotion. Um, I think when we deal with cancer patients, it's really important to have a whole team around that patient. So family support, psychologists, nursing support, physician support, all of those things can make such a big difference in a patient's ability to understand their diagnosis, move forward to treatment, and hopefully to recovery and cure. Right. And in thinking about this, just it's the concept of grief. And as you point out in the book, you know, just because you get a diagnosis, this is not a death sentence. You know, there there is recovery. And I guess in my own way, as I was reading it and trying to contextualize what you were describing a little bit, I got to thinking about, well, I guess if you're diagnosed and you then battle through it and goes into remission and it gets beaten, you know, you have moved into another sphere of your life now, you know, and it's just like, I think it's okay. Like what you're saying or how I'm interpreting what you're saying is that, you know, through writing, you know, in reflection while you're in the process, that's your own way of sort of moving on from one part of your life. You know, you can grieve for that part of your life and then you just sort of move on to this, to this next bit of it. I, yeah, I believe uh, writing is does allow you to reflect and give you time to interpret things. I know from so my older sister Debbie passed away from ovarian cancer, unfortunately. And in being a GYN oncologist, obviously we have patients that ovarian cancer has such a poor prognosis still. Most women being diagnosed at late stage three or four, where the survival rate is less than fifty percent at at five years. And so it's a process that I watched my sister go through with really the inability to change the course of disease from a surgeon's point of view, or even from a medical oncologist's point of view, you kind of see the path that many women end up following just because of the natural history of that disease. But being with her through that, you realize how important the present moment is how important it is sometimes, especially with cancer patients, to just be present. Whether there's a cure or not, your presence has a profound impact. And, you know, my sister, there's always blame to go around everywhere. And we don't understand a lot of these cancers well. We don't have very good treatments. And there needs to be more research, obviously, so that we have better better diagnosis, better screening, better interventions, but we don't have them now. And so I think we have to be present and deal with what's in front of us in real time and not dwell on the past of what could have been or in the future what we lost, but to live in the present as best we can. I wanted to say one thing. So my sister was amazing. She, with stage three recurrent disease, having chemo, would go sailing almost every day. She would go cross-country skiing when she had her terminal cancer diagnosis. I went to visit uh, her and her husband in Ottawa, and they took me cross-country skiing. And she was on chemo. Uh, she had alopecia. She took her, her winter hat off, and she was, like, skiing cross-country in this beautiful uh, park outside of Ottawa. And I was short of breath and they were fine. (laughs) And I was like, who's healthier here? (laughs) It's really, you know, how do we spend our days? How do we take Mm -hmm. care of ourselves? Are we like living our life the best we can? Are we having good nutrition, physical activity, spending time with our friends and people we love? Those are, are really things that are important to maintain quality of life. Absolutely. And you were just mentioning and you navigate this so well in the book too, but you present a lot of shocking statistics. 
One in particular, I am an Alabamian, and I was born and raised here, and this is where the ASRM offices are, and this is where I live, I work, I choose to live here, uh, I love it, but I was, I was so disheartened by the statistic you gave in the book, because, you know, again, it's when someone shows you something that you're not aware of, you go, oh, no, like, you know, like that, like instantly, and you mentioned in the book this, you say, Human Rights Watch World Report of 2018 draws attention to Alabama's cervical cancer mortality rate. 3.9 of every 100,000 women dying from cervical cancer as the highest in any U.S. state in twice the national average. Black women in Alabama suffer an unfair burden of poor health and death from cervical cancer at nearly twice the rate of white women. I, I was, I, you know, and, and again, I just, it just, I had to stop for a minute, you know, and just go, oh my, oh my goodness. You know, let me ask you then, in your professional opinion, is this primarily an education issue? Is it an economic issue? Would providing more rural outreach help, in your opinion, to, to get women to the doctors, to the specialists, to, to get diagnosed? I believe all of those things would make a difference. Our healthcare system has some structural bias, which we're even more aware of now that we've been through the COVID-19 pandemic, that mortality rates do fall along racial lines. And part of that is access to care, socioeconomic issues, trust of the medical system. If you look at the populations that um, have had HPV vaccination, for example, Black women have much lower rates of vaccination and Hispanic women as well relative to white women. And HPV vaccination is one of the reasons that the rate of cervical cancer has continued to decline in the U.S. along with uh, screening for with, you know, a PAP and HPV test and treatment of these dysplasias. So women who haven't been vaccinated, women who don't have the opportunity to access a well visit to get a pap smear. And then the follow-up of abnormal screening tests. I think if you've never had a pap test, there's women in the United States that have never had a pap test. They're one of the highest risk groups. That's one of the defining risk factors for cervix cancer is never having had a pap test. And there are women who have never had a pap test, unfortunately, in in part because of lack of uh, health insurance is a a barrier sometimes. Um, I think that shows the inequality of our healthcare system. Yeah. It, and again, you for listeners, when you pick up the book and you read it, Dr. Wright provides such wonderful yet mind-blowing statistics at the same time that really make you pause. Genetics comes up a number of times in your book. And with constant advancement in genetic testing in medicine, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what, what, what do you see are some of the pros and cons of some current genetic testing in regards to cancer screening or cancer issues in women's health? I think it's critically important that we screen for genetic predisposition to cancer. Having the screening test done, there are federal laws to protect people from genetic discrimination. So having, you know, that was one of the big concerns, but there are laws to protect our healthcare information. If you know you're at increased risk, maybe it will impact the decisions you make as far as your behaviors for risk reduction or whether you enroll in a screening program, you know, if you have access to that even. The cancers for us where it has the biggest impact is ovarian, fallopian tube cancers, but also uterine cancer. And these inheritable mutations that increased risk, people think that 
and were able to diagnose ovarian and fallopian tube cancers early. But even if you're in a high risk setting or high risk by, you know, by having family members affected, if you're getting an ultrasound and CA125 every six months, that's no guarantee you're not going to develop ovarian cancer because women develop ovarian cancer in that six month interval of follow-up sometimes. We just don't understand the biology of the disease well. So the genetic testing also now has an impact on treatment because if you're BRCA positive, you're more likely to respond to a group of drugs called PARP inhibitors. PARP inhibitors are incorporated now into the treatment of ovarian cancer after completing chemotherapy. They're part of what we call maintenance therapy to prevent recurrence of disease and are highly effective. I have women eight years out now that in the past probably would not still be, be living because of these PARP inhibitors. So genetic screening is not only identifying risk and then triaging you into a, a certain clinical program or follow-up, but also dictating what screening could be done, even though screening can be limited, but also that you could have risk-reducing surgery. Risk-reducing surgery for the prevention of ovarian and fallopian tube cancers means that the fallopian tubes and ovaries would be removed prophylactically to prevent cancer. And when we do that, about 5% of the time, we actually find a very early microscopic cancer in people who have gene mutations. In people who don't have a genetic risk and are undergoing gynecologic surgery now, the recommendation is if childbearing is complete to have a, it's called opportunistic salpingectomy. So we have an opportunity to decrease the risk of both fallopian tube and ovarian cancers by just removing the fallopian tube. We used to tie tubes for family planning reasons, but now the tubes are surgically removed because we know that some, some, some types, mainly serous ovarian and fallopian tubes cancers start in the fimbriata end of the fallopian tube. So by surgically removing the entire tube, we decrease the risk of fallopian tube cancers and serous ovarian cancer. My guest today is Dr. Valina Wright. We're talking about her book, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. We're talking about empowerment. We're talking about giving people the self-confidence to make, as you put it, better choices, you know, to, to set up these well-women visits, to make this happen. And again, you shine a light on this issue. There was one thing in particular. You said, basically, you can go to another doctor. If you don't feel, like you, you were saying earlier too, you know your own body and only you know your own body as well as you do. You know your symptoms. You, you know when something's wrong. And if you feel that it's, you know, you're getting contradictory information from a, from a primary care physician or, or specialist, I think it's very empowering for, for a doctor to say, well, yeah, I think you should go see somebody else because obviously something's wrong. So when a patient asks me if they should get a second opinion or not, I always encourage it. Because maybe I'll learn something, you know, maybe there's something the other doctor will have to, to add to the patient's care that I might not have thought of, you know, hopefully it's not going to change anything major, but if it gives the patients more options, a second opinion makes them feel more confident and able to move forward with treatment, that's all positive. How can that, how can that really be negative? It can, I guess, be negative if you get two contradictory opinions and then you have to get a third tiebreaker and that like it can get, it can get confusing. So I think it's important to, to just have a relationship that you trust the doctor and that you're able to work through things that don't make sense or, or where there are different options so that you have your questions answered, you know, that um, you feel that 
you've had things explained well and you understand the terminology. It's not proper for patients to be given explanations with medical jargon. In, in, in the book, you do such a wonderful job of blending and mixing, and then you have a tremendous glossary section, you know, in the back, just in case there's still any lingering questions about any of the topics or the, or the terms you, you, you bring up. I have one more question for you before we run out of time. You touch on in one chapter of the book, the issue of caring for the elderly. This made me think about that I know very little about my own mother's medical status as a woman in her 70s. And, you know, and that's not saying, you know, normally she tells me about the doctor visits, you know, but I, but I had not considered or, or I hadn't really even thought about that, you know, I may have to one day deal with that on a more engaged and personal level, you know, and <laughs> the embarrassment roses begin to bloom, you know, in my, in my cheeks. And I was, as I was reading one of the, the, the accounts you were giving in the book, I went, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I can't, I can't ask my mother that. But <laughs> I wanted to ask, you know, is this largely ignored? You know, is, is it due to the way that we're often raised to not connect with our parents on that level when, when, when we reach these stages in life? I, you know, I think they, they're just difficult conversations because of our socialization. Like, I wouldn't really want to ask my dad a lot of questions about sex, I guess, <laughs> or issues, or he'll ask, he's older, obviously, or, and ask, even, you know, there are certainly difficult conversations, but I think the point is, you have to try and have these conversations, and there's some tools in the books to help you have them, like especially conversations about end-of-life care, so that you can live to the end of your life with dignity and your family should know what it is that's important to you so that they can respect that. Also, I think it's, it's important to know your family history because of the role of genetics and not just genetics, but environmental factors, because you share, you know, very similar backgrounds in many ways, not just genetic of what you've been exposed to, where you've lived, where you've traveled, your nutrition, all of those habits, secondhand smoke smokers, you know, all of those things come into play in a complex formula or puzzle that we need to know all the pieces to make the best diagnosis and recommendations to improve your health. Absolutely. And, you know, again, is any doctor's office is always advised to me, even though I know, look, I know there's a lot on this form, but the more you tell us, the more we can help you. You know, that's usually how I also communicate it to other people. In, in my own life, I have found that my father has uh, withheld some important medical information from me. And then we're having a very side conversation, you know, at dinner one night and he goes, Oh yeah, by the way, my cancer screening went great. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you're what? And, you know, like that. And I'm like, I did not know we were doing cancer screenings. What's going on? You know, and he's just like, Oh, you know, it does one of those it just sort of shrugs it off. I'm like, don't shrug it off. It's great. I'm putting it in my phone now. So when I go see my general practitioner, I can go, yes, yeah, there's a history of this. Yes, please, please, please run the right test for me. My guest today was Dr. Valina Wright. Her book, it's out right now. It's called, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. It is available uh, wherever books are sold and or downloaded or however it is that you ingest your information these days. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Please rate and review the show. And if you have not already, please subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or however it is you currently subscribe to podcasts. 
Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is the ASRM Today Book Review. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.